From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're going to chat with a scientist who is trying to solve a big challenge, engineering blood vessels for transplantation into human bodies. We'll also talk to a researcher who's trying to fix a problem that might be even harder to solve, reducing gender pay disparities in corporate America. The sociologist and the bioengineer, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week, we bring two people together who work in very different areas of science, research, and discovery. And almost always when we do this, we find there's a lot we can learn about one another when we break through the barriers that so often divide us. On this program, those divides are usually academic. We bring natural scientists together with social scientists. We bring researchers together with developers and people who study the deepest parts of our Earth. We bring them together with folks who study the furthest reaches of our universe. Today, we won't be stretching that far, but our guests are definitely from different worlds. Joining me in studio is Christy Glass, a professor of sociology at Utah State University, whose recent study in the journal Human Relations suggests that integrating women onto the boards of directors and compensation committees for Fortune 500 companies isn't enough to impact gender pay disparities. But giving those women influence on those boards and committees, as the chair does. Christy, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Matthew. And also with us on the line from North Carolina, where he is the Associate Director of New Product Development at Humasite Incorporated, is Rob Kirkton. His team's recent study, published in the journal Science Translational Medicine, describes a process for bioengineering blood vessels that, when installed into the arms of dialysis patients, were successfully integrated into their own circulatory systems. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Matthew. It's great to be here. Let's start by talking about... Respect. And in particular, let's talk about it in one place it really matters, in the ways women are hired for and compensated for work. One of the places we often look to when trying to understand the state of compensation for women is at the top. And the picture is really dismal. Women make up just 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs. That's 475 men and 25 women in charge of the largest companies in the United States. And the difference between the top-earning male executives and the top-earning female executives could pay for an entire NBA starting lineup. Christy Glass, you've been looking at the structural barriers that women confront throughout their careers and throughout the economic spectrum for a long time. This has got to be a frequently disappointing area of research. What draws you to it? Yeah, so there are disappointments. We're in an era right now where we're actually seeing significant declines in women and people of color leading our largest companies. We currently have two black men CEOs in the entire Fortune 500, one woman of color leading a company. Um, so this is depressing, but you know what What inspires and motivates me and my brilliant research partner, Allison Cook, is you know the time we've spent with these leaders, interviewing them about their experiences, about their challenges, but also about the ways in which they've, against the odds, overcome these barriers. And and those stories inspire us. So let's talk about like systemically changing these barriers. If if I wanted to fix this, I'd say, hey, you know what we need to do is we need to put more women on the boards of directors and more women onto key board committees. And that's going to result in getting more women, not just as CEOs, but in positions across management, which are the primary pipelines, I, I gather, for CEOs. And if I wanted to test that theory, I'd love to get my hands on a data set like the one your team used. Can you talk a little bit about this data that you were working with? 
This is a, a data set that we spent an enormous amount of time developing because to answer these critical questions, what are the barriers that women and people of color face in reaching these top positions? What difference does it make when they get there? And what strategies do they use to succeed? To answer these questions, you need data, right? We spent uh, years actually collecting these data from a variety of public data sets, web searches, annual reports, so that we could build the kind of data that would allow us to answer the kinds of questions that matter. And that data was salary levels of not just CEOs, but people within senior marketing teams, right? Not just salaries, but the overall compensation for all top executives. We had data on who those executives are and the composition of the board of directors, uh, how many women, which women, when they were appointed, what committees within the board they serve on, what leadership roles, if any, they hold. Um, and this really allowed us to answer the really critical question. We know that women and people of color need to be in leadership, but when and how does their leadership make a difference? When you dug into this research, what you found is that it's not enough just to have women on these boards and committees. That's right. In terms of the gender wage gap between top executives or the gender compensation gap. And this is important because I think conventional wisdom suggests that, you know, you hear this all the time. We just need more women in these leadership roles. And that's true. I in no way want to suggest that that is not a good plan. But numbers, if it's not tied to influence and power, is less impactful. But I think we need to focus not just on adding women and stirring, but on making sure those women in power have the resources and authority they need to actually pursue their, their vision. So let's dig into that a little bit. You looked at three different aspects of how women serve on these boards and committees, not just whether they are there. But the first thing you looked at was integration. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? You know, there are still boards of directors of major companies that are all white men. So we wanted to understand what difference it makes, if any, if women are integrated. Does this matter in terms of how the board sets compensation? So you also looked at direct decision making. So that's who on a board isn't just sitting in a room and part of the conversation, but they're part of the team that's pulling triggers. Is that right? We know that when women do serve on boards, they're significantly less likely to serve on the most powerful committees. And the compensation committee on a corporate board is a very influential, powerful committee. So we also wanted to say, well, what difference does it make, as you said, when they're in the room? There are a lot of reasons why being one of the only women in the room reduces your influence and your authority. But we wanted to test that, right? So does it actually make a difference if you add a woman to that really influential and powerful board? And we found that it really doesn't, at least with regard to compensation differences between men and women. And that's the other thing you looked at. You looked at this, this area of, of influence. Yeah. So we look at integration. We look at decision making. We look at influence. And what you found is that it's not enough just to have the women in the room. It's not enough just to have them part of the conversation. The key to closing the gender pay gap is making sure they have direct influence over company decisions and compensation decisions. Why is that? There's lots of research, including our own research, that suggests that when women are in token roles, so they're one of only one or two women in otherwise male-dominated boards or committees, their influence may, may actually decline relative to their peers. They experience hyper-scrutiny. The things they say are not treated with as much credence as the suggestions or, or ideas of men. They face intense pressure to conform 
to the dominant group's perspective, they stand out like a sore thumb. And and if you've ever been in a situation where you stand out, it's uncomfortable and it's really hard to be bold and go against the grain. Our study pretty clearly shows that you need representation, but also power and influence. Ensuring women have direct influence over compensation decisions, it closes the gender pay gap. Does it eliminate the gender pay gap? I want to be cautious because this is social science data and it's really hard to demonstrate causation, but we actually show the gap disappears when women chair the compensation committee. You know, that chair position, even if they're the only woman in the room, grants them a degree of authority and power and influence over that committee. And and our data seem to suggest that that's the magic. That's the magical potion. Not just having women present in the room, but making sure they have influence and power over decision-making. Now, should we say there that this shouldn't have to be the case? Like, it shouldn't have to be women's work to make sure that women are being compensated equally, right? Absolutely. All too often, we treat issues of equity as women's work or as a side hustle. You know, we we segregate it into HR. We don't deal with it head on. But, you know, when you are paying talented people unequally, it is fundamentally an organizational failure. It is a question of talent. And if you don't compensate your talent equally, you will lose that talent. Your study looked at pay decisions in the upper echelons of top companies, Fortune 500 companies. Are there lessons that have relevance in smaller institutions? Absolutely. The conventional wisdom is that unless you have a critical mass of women, you can't overcome those token limitations. But in a number of studies, we actually find that even just a single woman, but a single woman who has the influence and power to drive decision making, can transform organizations. That's Christy Glass, whose recent study in the journal Human Relations suggests that closing the gender pay gap isn't as easy as putting more women on corporate boards. You have to put them in decision-making roles on those boards. Christy, can you stick around while I chat with our next guest? I'd love to. Okay, let's talk about bioengineering. How do you take something that has been used up and shattered and mend it back together? Well, if you're talking about blood vessels, then you might just turn to bioengineers like our next guest. Rob Kirkton, can we start by talking about the extent of the need for blood vessel implants? Hundreds of thousands of people in the United States alone, as I understand it. What are the causes of this need and what are the current options for filling it? So there, there are many different options. We have kind of focused our initial development plan on providing vessels for patients that have end-stage renal disease and are currently seeking dialysis. There's over 468,000 people currently in the United States who are getting their blood filtered at a dialysis clinic because their kidneys aren't properly removing toxins from their blood. For them, there are a few different options if we just look at that field. The gold standard is that surgeons will, will connect their artery and vein together in their arm typically, and that creates this conduit of high flow of blood that then they can use to access the, the dialysis clinic. If that doesn't work, the next standard of care usually is to use a synthetic graft material, something that can be made out of, for example, Teflon, or, or there are woven materials such as Dacron tubes, and these are synthetic materials that are used off the shelf and and implanted into patients, but they often incur a a higher risk of clotting and infection and other complications. Okay, so now you've come up with another option. You've come up with these bioengineered blood vessels. I want to dive into how you and your team did this because it's absolutely fascinating. This all starts with a biodegradable tube, right? And then what? 
We start out with a biodegradable mesh, and we wrap this mesh-like material around a silicone flexible tube. We take cells that are isolated from um, people who are generous enough to, to donate their organs to science and research, and we harvest vascular cells from the descending thoracic aorta of these tissues. Those cells are then placed on the biodegradable mesh. They grow over time. We give them the right nutrients. We provide them the right oxygen. We also provide them biomechanical stretch, so just like they would on your arteries or veins from your pulse. And over time, these cells grow in this mesh. The mesh sort of melts away, and this extracellular matrix then takes over and creates this blood vessel in this sterile bag. We scrub out all the cells and all the DNA so that that blood vessel is acellular. That is crucial because that means that no matter who donated those cells, this vessel can now be implanted in anyone without a fear of an immune reaction to someone else's cells. So now you've got this tube. You've seeded it with a few donor cells. You dunk it into a bioreactor. You get this little tube of cells that starts secreting these proteins and building this protein tube. And up until this point, Rob, you've got a pretty cool trick, right? But then you implanted these bioengineered tubes into 60 patients. What happened then? The study looked at tissues of our blood vessel that were implanted from 16 weeks to four years after they were implanted, little small segments of them taken out, and we looked at them to see how they evolve over time in the patient. And what we noticed was that they actually start to form into something that resembles the patient's own blood vessel. So they start out with no cells in them, and then fairly quickly, the patient's own cells recognize this space, invade it, and then start to change it. And then we start to see different layers being formed. And it it truly became a living tissue. And the patients, they accepted these cells, these new vessels at a pretty high rate, right? It was their cells almost finding an empty apartment building. Coming in there, decorating, expanding, and then just making it its own vessel. The vessel actually had its own blood supply. We have some indication that could actually seal itself once a needle pierced it. So it was really remarkable for me to look through the microscope lens and to see this almost new world that was created inside the vessels that we made in a lab. And what I really find fascinating is this idea that like, if you're not transplanting cells from another organism, from another human being, if what you're only transplanting is this protein tube... There is no inflammatory response. There, there's no like. There's no rejection of this new piece of the human. It's just the transplant recipient building its its own tubes with with its own cells. Exactly, and and the thing that that makes it different a little bit, you know, from uh, from other things, is that what we're making is is a human collagen protein that's made out of human vascular cells. So these cells that we use to make it, they leave behind the structure that's biologically similar to what a blood vessel would be. And what we're, we're making is, is a scaffold itself. And that's where we're hoping that, you know, that we have this biological matrix that's human without the human cells in it. That's where we feel that, you know, we have this capability for this regeneration once it's implanted in a person that perhaps those other vessels aren't going to have that potential. You mentioned that this is a process that can take years in some patients. Is that a big challenge to overcome? I don't think so. I, you know, the first data point we had was, was four months. We're going to continue investigating this, and we may find that we may have even earlier evidence, earlier time points that we can look at. But I, I don't think it's concerning that it takes that long. I think we saw a substantial amount of change even within months 
um, and the process is kind of ongoing and evolving. So what are the next steps? You mentioned that you have ongoing clinical trials. What are we looking at now? The study was on our phase two trial, as you mentioned, with 60 patients. We've expanded it into two phase three clinical trials. One of them um, where we're waiting on the readout from. That that first one was a a trial that compared our bioengineered blood vessel to one of those polymer synthetic graphs. So we'll see them, you know, head, head to head. Um, the another clinical trial that we have going to phase three is to compare our vessel to what I mentioned is sort of the gold standard that vascular surgeons often do where they connect the patient's own artery and vein together. So there are many other opportunities, whether it's from trauma, peripheral artery disease, coronary bypass. We know that we have a platform that's highly modifiable and there's a, a huge clinical need that we can hopefully provide material that can be transformative and help it many patients out there who need it. That's Rob Kirkton. He is the Associate Director of New Product Development at Humicite Incorporated and one of the authors of a recent paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine that describes a technique for bioengineering blood vessels. Rob, you were listening in as I was chatting with Christy earlier, and she was listening to you. Ready for an introduction? Yes. Rob, this is sociologist Christy Glass, and Christy, this is bioengineer Rob Kirkton. Nice to meet you, Rob. Nice to meet you too, Christy. Maybe I could start by noting that I recently came upon a few studies that have sought to examine the gender disparities in access use and outcomes for patients being treated for kidney disease. And all of these studies have suggested that disparities are likely influenced by differences in biology, but those differences don't explain the totality of the disparities, which are in some cases quite stark. And this is, of course, part of a larger worldwide problem in which women tend to have poorer access to health care than men. So, Rob, first I'm going to note that I did a check, and Humicide is ahead of the curve, 40% of its executive team and board of directors are women, and the founder of the company is a woman. That's Laura Nicholson from Yale University. I wonder, from your perspective, when do potential gender disparities in eventual access to the products you're developing start showing up on your radar? When do you start thinking about those things? Our goal, obviously, is to make sure that any patient who needs this vessel is able to get it. So there's there's definitely a group in the company that looks at health economics and reimbursement and how do we get this and distribute it to the people who need this. You know, in terms of product development, I will say sometimes there is anatomical differences between males and females. So we, we do think about that as well. If we're designing a product, we know that. We handle that. We make products in a range of sizes and lengths and diameters that will fit any patient. You know, what's interesting to me about your company, Rob, uh, my research with Allison Cook shows that one of the ways in which women and people of color influence their organizations when they hold key leadership roles is they make their organizations first uh, more innovative. That's not because women and people of color somehow have some, you know, special magic, but it's because you have people in a room who have different perspectives and life experiences problem solving. Have you seen that since you've been at your company with the role that Dr. Nicholson played or, or the role that other women or people of color in your leadership have played? We were founded by three female scientists. 40% of our executive team are, are females, and you know we also have a strong leadership team on our, our um, executive board. So this has guided our company, guided our culture, guided how we think about our product and what our goals are. 
Christy, I was going to ask you as I was making some notes while you were talking, you know, have you been able to look at science companies or biotech companies and any differences between, you know, different sectors of business and whether there is any difference there? That's a great question. We haven't looked specifically at different industries, though that's something that we try and control in our in our analyses of the Fortune 500. But we have analyzed the impact of the gender racial composition of the overall industry on the likelihood that women or people of color will rise to the top. And there actually is some evidence that in industries that are more diverse, there are more opportunities, partly because there's a stronger pipeline. My sense is that STEM you know, and there are specific sectors like tech that are deeply concerned about women and people of color in their pipeline, but aren't yet uh, at the place where they have a really rich pool from which to be drawing for, for leadership roles. One of the major thrusts of our research is called the glass cliff. We find that when women and people of color are promoted to top leadership, it's much more likely to be during times of crisis where the organization is at risk to fail. And so they're, you know, the metaphor is they're pushed off a glass cliff. But we actually find that when the board has really strong representation of women, it eliminates the glass cliff, increases women's chances of being nominated or appointed to CEO, irrespective of firm performance or crisis or scandal. One of the questions I have about your work, Rob, has to do with the kind of really tricky ethical debates that are going on right now around around bioengineering. Broadly speaking, one of the findings from my research with Allison Cook is that when women lead companies, those companies are much more likely to have strong governance, including in terms of transparency and ethics and commitment to sustainability. How do you think about these debates around the use of technology, uh, specifically bioengineering? I was involved in, in genetic engineering for cardiovascular research in graduate school, and I've had these discussions too. And we, we, we spoke a lot at Duke about the integrity of science and what you know, public responsibility. And there's a lot of fascinating potential for when gene editing, for screening through certain mutations. As, as we get more and more information about the genome and what, what effect it has, you know, it opens up a lot of possibilities for therapeutics but it also opens up all these kind of the Pandora box of, of what could be done and how it needs to be regulated. And I think it has to be, be regulated in some ways. But I know those lines are blurry sometimes, and, and so it, it will, I think it will take a community to define what those lines are. So I wanted to get back to one of your points you mentioned, Christy, about the leadership roles in the company and how they influence others. And I was just wondering if, if you've seen that in different economic times, whether or not the rate at which you see people of color or females taking leadership positions has changed recently. What, what the rate of change is in, in, of this event? Sure. So we've been studying crisis leadership for a long time. And as I mentioned, women and people of color are much more likely to be appointed during times of crisis. And there were all kinds of possibilities for why this might be true. The consensus seemed to be that they were pushed off the glass cliff. In other words, they were kind of forced into these really risky uh, leadership roles that kind of set them up for failure. But Allison Cook and I have spent uh, several years now interviewing in depth women and people of color who've held these really top positions. And we've talked to them a lot about taking risks and crisis leadership. And a story has emerged that changed the way we think about this. So what we heard from our respondents again and again is that early on in their career, they were the only black man or the only woman or the only Latina at their rank. 
and they were vis- highly visible, but for all the wrong reasons. They were highly visible because they stood out. So they developed the strategy early on in their career to become known for the right reasons. And that led them over the course of 20 or 30 years, which is how long it takes to become CEO, to develop a high risk strategy of career development. So they went after the most challenging leadership roles again and again. And by succeeding in crisis leadership and risk management, they became known as crisis specialists. So when the company was in trouble for them, it's no mystery why they were tapped to be CEO, because that's what they've built a reputation around. Not being the black CEO, not being the black executives or or the woman executive, but being the best crisis management in the industry. The conventional wisdom would say, that women are less risk-taking than men. But actually, recent research by my collaborator, Alicia Ingersoll, actually shows that's not the case. It shows that companies led by women CEOs are actually much more strategically risky. And we think, at least in part, that's because of who these women and people of color CEOs are. They're people who have built a reputation of taking risks, of leading through crisis, and doing it all successfully. If I can bring that all together, it seems like we're in this significant time of change when it comes to bioengineering and genetic engineering and outside of the box thinking within these fields, like what's happening at Rob's company. This might be the perfect time for those leaders. Yeah. Absolutely. I am, you know, I'm thrilled to hear about the kind of diversity that your company's built, Rob, because that tells me that you are recruiting the most talented people. And I don't think there's any field where talent matters more than science. We're going to have to leave it there. Christy Glass, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. And Rob Kirkton, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, Rob. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.